His name was never made public, so we'll call him Eugene. What we do know is that Eugene wasn't given long to live. It was a cold Seattle evening in 1964. Louis Armstrong was riding high. President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and the Surgeon General reported. Cigarette smoking is a health hazard of sufficient... Eugene was headed downtown to a nondescript building, a former residence hall for nurses at the Swedish hospital. There, a group of seven ordinary people were meeting in the small library on the ground floor. A lawyer, a banker, a surgeon, a housewife, a labor leader, a state official, and minister, who by this time all knew each other well. The core values of one another, philosophies. For there's a certain bonding that occurs when you're doing something that has never been done before. Yet few of them knew each other prior to the last two years. That's when they got the call. They were each invited to the same building downtown, ushered downstairs into the basement, and then into a newly built clinic. There, they were introduced to one of the most significant medical breakthroughs of the 20th century. The first artificial organ, dialysis machines, that could filter the blood of patients whose kidneys had failed. The catch? Only one out of every 50 patients who needed it could be accommodated, and doctors had no way of choosing. So, with no moral or ethical guidelines, these seven otherwise ordinary citizens were asked to form a committee to decide whose lives were worth extending. At first, the minister refused. No, I don't choose to play God. None of them felt comfortable with it. But they all ultimately agreed. They quickly decided to keep their names anonymous and the medical records of patients, too. They didn't want to know who the patients were, and under no circumstance were the patients to know who they were. The only advice the physicians offered to automatically reject patients over the age of 45 and children. How do you decide whose life is worth extending? Age, sex, marital status, the number of dependents, net worth, occupation, education, church attendance, emotional stability. How do you measure the contribution to society of anyone? How do you compare a prolific artist with, say, a blue-collar worker with three kids? Or what if the lesser candidate is rich and promises to fund multiple clinics? These questions haunted them. Even though they deliberated over anonymous medical records, it was impossible to forget that each file was connected to a real person, not the least because each included a case history, which served as a de facto pitch a testament to their character and why it was important they were chosen to live. 
Were they philanthropic? How old were their children? If they died, would their spouse be able to support them? How do you grapple with that? For the minister, it was the fact that all these patients were sick and were already destined to die. Without treatment, needy patients wouldn't last a few weeks. Patients like Eugene, who had just parked on the street outside the building. A familiar face, his attorney. They stepped to the small library on the ground floor. But then Eugene paused. He took a deep breath, politely knocked, and... Can we help you? The minister said. My name is Eugene, and I'm here because I'm sick. Eugene, you look like a good man. Have your doctor submit for this program. He did. And I was rejected. I see. I was hoping if I appealed to you in person, you might reconsider. Eugene glanced back. This is my attorney, who can arrange for payments if you want. There are many factors, Eugene. Maybe there was a mistake. I'm afraid not. Eugene tucked his chin and nodded. Sir? Eugene looked up. I'm here to tell you, with all my heart, I want to live. Reverend John B. Dara, the minister, later described being confronted by this patient the committee had declined as disconcerting and painful. Quote, he was an exceedingly fine gentleman, fighting for extended life. When the patient and attorney departed, immediately committee members asked, how did this happen? Who invited them? I accepted the evaluation that none of us knew how it happened. We concluded, however, that it must never happen again, and it did not. The Admissions and Policy Committee of the Artificial Kidney Center met for 10 years. Now, you would think that this was all kept a secret, but it wasn't. A whole two years before Eugene showed up, the committee was profiled by Life magazine. Photos of them were taken, their faces shrouded in darkness. This was followed up by an NBC documentary in 1965. The applicant must be approved by a jury of his peers. In a word, is he worth saving? And somebody has got to decide who shall live and who shall die. Each one of us has expressed his opinion and that we are then ready to cast a vote and I'll call all in favor accepting Mr. D. Say aye. 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 And opposed? Mr. D. has accepted as the next candidate for our kidney center. So why kidney disease? And why do a series on it now? Shaken to the core by a once-in-a-century global pandemic. Perhaps the single biggest issue is... Healthcare, in my view, is a human right. If you're sick, if you're struggling, I will not abandon you. 
and we're going to get through this together. There are two main arguments for universal health care. The first is equity. The pandemic hitting the U.S. is hitting people of color especially hard. On racial disparities in African Americans are among the hardest hit here. That no matter your race or socioeconomic status, access to health care should be equal. Health disparities have always existed for the African American community. But here again with the crisis, it's shining a bright light on how unacceptable that is. It's not that they're getting infected more often, is that when they do get infected, their underlying medical conditions, those are the kind of things that wind them up in the ICU and ultimately give them a higher death rate. The second reason is economic. Before the 2008 financial crisis, the single largest reason people lost their homes was medical bills. Today, it's no different. We spend twice as much on healthcare than the average industrialized country. 18% of our whole economy. But by many metrics, including life expectancy, we're less healthy. No one disputes this. Everyone wants universal healthcare. Universal healthcare. I am going to take care of everybody. But nobody can agree how to achieve it. We have, however, experimented with universal healthcare for one disease. Good afternoon. This a president signs many bills. is President Nixon. But one that I signed today gave me special satisfaction. The aftershocks of the God Committee, as the Seattle Committee came to be known, could no longer be ignored. What is wrong is that a medical miracle has been achieved and we refuse to face its implications. We continue to argue over where the money is coming from. And we have the money. If you had liver disease, heart disease, cancer any other issue and didn't have private insurance, you were on your own. But if you had end-stage renal disease to pay for kidney transplants, kidney failure, you would be covered. Here's the former medical director of the National Kidney Foundation in a 1982 documentary. For the first time in America, for everyone, no matter where they came from, no matter what age, what part of the country, what the social economic condition, the ethnic or racial group, to receive health care equally. For the first time ever in the history of our country, it didn't matter your age, the color of your skin, where you were from, or how rich or poor you were. There would be equality, at least with respect to kidney failure. The government said, if you can't afford treatment, We will be there for you. So what happened? I'm David Chrisman, and welcome to The Great Social Experiment, the story and lessons we can take from America's first and only experiment with universal health care. We begin with the central puzzle of this series. The facts can be grim. More than 100,000 people in the U.S., are awaiting a kidney transplant. To join 100,000 other Americans on a waiting list On for a waiting a list for a second chance at life. To highlight the importance of organ donation, every so often, we're reminded by the media that there's about 100,000 people waiting for a kidney. We see it on the news, hear it on the radio, and if we're really curious, we can look it up online. One webpage after another, same number. Over the last decade, the number has dropped from
from around 100,000 to 90,000, trending downward. Of those, between 4 and 5,000 will die every year waiting, about 12 every day. The urgency for donation is real. But there's one problem. All those numbers are at best misleading. Why? Because if I hear 100,000 people are waiting for a kidney, I naturally assume those are all the people who need a kidney. In reality, the number of people we hear about are only those that have been evaluated and accepted by a transplant center and then are put on the list. The actual number of people who have kidney failure that our taxes pay to treat isn't 100,000, not even close. It's about 600,000 and growing. We have 600,000 people on dialysis in our country. To put that into perspective, there are more people in our country who will die if they aren't hooked up to a machine to filter their blood than the whole population of Wyoming. So then why the difference? You would expect everyone on dialysis to want a transplant, a one-to-one ratio. Transplant is by far and away the better of the two treatments, yet only 15% make it to the list. Not guaranteed an organ, just given a fighting chance. If you think that's low, you're not alone. A lot of doctors and researchers agree that in many ways, this system of universal healthcare has been a cautionary tale. But it also presents a unique opportunity. Because if we can understand why, why there's this gap and who gets access to the better of two treatments, it doesn't just provide a roadmap for fixing kidney care, but a powerful framework for fixing healthcare in our system as a whole. When Lance Jackson opened his eyes, he was on a ventilator. Though disoriented, he immediately recognized the only other person in the room, his grandmother. She saw he was awake and ran for a doctor. For the next few days, doctors at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio ran tests. Lance slowly gained strength, enough that on the third day, he decided to try to take a walk on his own. He got out of bed, stepped to the door, and opened it, only to come face-to-face with a high-end private security guard not one that you'd ordinarily see at a hospital. The guard told him to go back in his room. He obliged, and as he turned around, he noticed that the guard was one of many, part of a larger security detail. He closed the door behind him, and that's when, for the first time, he noticed that he wasn't in an ordinary hospital room. In every sense, it was a VIP suite. It had furniture, a fold-out bed, microwave, even a flat-screen TV which for the year 2001 wasn't your typical hospital accommodation. Lance wasn't rich or famous, nor someone who needed special protection, and he didn't even live in Cleveland. The last thing he remembered was driving up from Georgia to visit his grandmother. Soon I got there, I just felt feverish in the driveway, and I just sat there for a minute, and then my grandmother and everybody came out. I was like, are you okay? And I told them, no, I can't breathe, feel like I'm having a heart attack. He was 30 years old, 
working as a manager at McDonald's, and never really had health problems up until the last month. Dry mouth. I had to keep water by the bed, longages or candy in my mouth to keep it moist. Gaining excessive weight um, went from like 150 to like 210 in like one month. Which was sadly ironic because the thing that was making him sick, which he didn't know at the time, was a diet pill that was pulled off the market. I kept going to the hospital, tell them I can't breathe, I'm gaining weight. They tell me it was nothing wrong. My blood pressure elevated. I went to the fire department. They said it was like 200 over 110. You need to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. They kept saying there's nothing really wrong. The symptoms weren't constant. They came and went, came and went, came and went. Had they been constant? It's likely he would have never decided to take the 12-hour drive to Ohio. And that may have been the end of him, because Lance lived alone. And instead of being home alone, he had barely just arrived at his grandmother's. When everybody came out and asked, Are you okay? He stepped one foot out of the car. That's when I collapsed right there between them, the doorway, and I fell out. And that's all I remember. Lance's grandmother never left his side. And for whatever reason, Lance was moved to a special wing of the main hospital's seventh floor. It catered to VIP guests, members of the Saudi royal family, ambassadors, and international businessmen that all paid top dollar. The doctor came in, he explained that I'll be on dialysis. And then he was like, well, you take care of yourself, you'll be all right. So I was like, okay. So Within a short time, the state of Ohio took Lance's driver's license away because he kept passing out behind the wheel. I just kept passing out at dialysis. Every day I would pass out. For many patients, dialysis can be a grueling existence. You feel washed out because they're basically taking all the fluid off in three or four hours that you've accumulated over two or three days. This is Dr. Janice Lee. I am a nephrologist, a kidney specialist at Emory University, professor of medicine, and I've been a practicing physician for over 25 years. Dr. Lee is actually who introduced me to Lance. I flew to Atlanta. Dr. Lee? to interview her at one of Emory's dialysis clinics. Hey. How are you? I'm good. Nice to meet you. Come on, Emory. Like many clinics, it's a large facility. Patients sit in cushioned chairs, and their blood is drawn out of their body into dialysis machines, filtered, and then circulated back in. They do this three times a week, for about three to four hours at a time. More than half the people on dialysis in the United States are younger than the age of 64. About 80% of them seem to be unemployed, largely because the procedure requires a lot of time throughout the week, and it takes a large toll on a person's body. What Dr. Lee was saying is that dialysis, in just three to four hours, removes the fluid that healthy people pee out over the course of two to three days. And so it really taxes the body. It puts a strain on the heart. They feel weak. Their blood pressure can drop really low. Which is why Lance kept passing out. So when you have normal kidney function, which what a transplant gives you, you're excreting your waste products, your fluid every day, just like a normal person. You pee. 
Without kidneys, you don't produce urine, and that fluid builds up in your body, which is why Lance gained so much weight. Would you say that a person with a functioning transplant is sick? Not really, no. I would say they're pretty, pretty well. How about a person on dialysis? Yes, for sure. The poisons and waste products, fluid, are still in their body most of the times. I can't describe to you, but there were certain days I was always in a fog. This is transplanted patient Daryl Taylor describing what it's like to be on dialysis. You were always in a fog? In a fog, pretty much, because the days you get clean, you're at a mental state, I'm okay. The next day, I felt like I was always in a, in a fog, a cloud. And not just that, but just existing. You understand? Just existing from day to day. If I live, oh well. If I make it, I'm just existing. And the average patient is that way. For the most part, I feel. This constant stress on the body is the reason why the longer you're on dialysis, the worse your prognosis. About 50% of patients will die within three years. If they get a transplant, they can extend their life, maybe not quite as a normal patient without kidney disease, but much longer. So given this and the fact that the surgery was all but paid for, you would think that getting Lance on the wait list for a transplant would have been priority number one. He was young, had no other health conditions, and was suffering. But that's not what happened. So I started dialysis at Cleveland Clinic, one of the satellites. He stayed in Ohio for a year before moving back to Georgia, got adjusted to life on dialysis, and some of the side effects, including the passing out, subsided. But according to him, at no point did anyone treating him that year mention transplant. I started hearing it in, um, they were talking about it in 2004. Did anybody tell you about living donation? No. Living donation is really what sets kidney failure apart. More than half of all transplants last year were kidneys. Part of this is because we do have the ability to keep people alive longer on dialysis. Part because kidneys can be preserved longer outside the body. And part because while humans have two kidneys, they only need one to live a normal life. The other can be donated. Of course, now that's commonplace. We expect kidneys to function, but this was a first. While the thought of a living person donating an organ might sound like a rarity, the first successful kidney transplant was just that. Between two twin brothers in 1954, the surgery performed by Dr. Joseph Murray heard here. There was no point in going to a library because you knew that nobody ever had done it in the world. This was a whole eight years before the Seattle committee ever met. And we didn't know it was going to be a historic operation. We just knew that we were in a position to help a person who's dying. So by the time Lance started dialysis, kidney transplants had become routine. There were multiple centers in Ohio and Georgia. And remarkably, between the year 2000 and 2004, when he first learned about transplant, there were actually more living than deceased donors. This is important because living donor kidneys not only last up to twice as long as those from deceased donors, but they allow recipients to avoid long and often fatal waits on the wait list. 
and in many cases, avoid waiting altogether. This past summer, Selena Gomez was gravely ill, weeks away from dialysis and in desperate need of a new kidney. She returned to the home she was sharing with her close friend, Francia Raisa. I hadn't asked anything. I knew that she hadn't been feeling well. She couldn't open a water bottle one day. She chucked it and she started crying. And I said, what's wrong? And that's when she told me. And she goes, I don't know what to do. The list is seven to 10 years long. And it just vomited out of me. I was like, of course I'll get tested. Selena had had her whole family tested. Nobody's amazing. I want you to imagine Selena Gomez posting to her 225 million plus Instagram followers images of herself hooked up to a dialysis machine, far too weak to sing her act. And the public found out that her doctors never suggested living donation. With our situation, because we were kind of an emergency situation, I did everything in like a day. And usually the process takes like six months. Imagine if Selena Gomez disappeared from the public for seven to 10 years waiting for a kidney. You feel that Francia saved your life. Because she did. There's a reason why Selena Gomez, George Lopez, Natalie Cole, Sarah Hyland, Tracy Morgan, Sean Elliott, Alonzo Mourning, and Neil Simon all received living kidney donations. They were informed. In fact, you can bet your life savings that a doctor sat down with them as soon as they were diagnosed and started to carefully explain why they should get a transplant, if not mandate they immediately start looking for a living donor. When was the first time you heard of living donation? Um, probably 09. So you're on dialysis for nine years before you even learn about the concept of living donation. Yes. And you're on dialysis for four years before you even hear about transplant. Right. A lot of people will say, well, why not Google this stuff? Did you ever research? No, because when I first started, you don't think about that. I was sick. I just wanted to get better. The first four years, your body going up and down. You sick. You in the hospital. Your body, you're going through so many changes. Your mind is not all the way there. You're not thinking clear. So you're not really thinking like that. If I had like a support group that was pushing me towards it, maybe I would have thought about Googling. But at that time, I was just trying to get adjusted to dialysis. Some days I come home, I'm sick. I'm in the bed all day. My mouth tired. I can't even chew to eat. I mean, I'm sick. All I do is want to sleep. And then the other days you just want to get some rest in because the next day you have to go to dialysis. So you sick again. So you're trying to prepare yourself mentally and physically. So should we expect any patient to already know about transplant at the moment they start dialysis? I would say the majority of them don't know. And if you really think about it, why would they? People have different interests and varying levels of education. Driving a car is more universal than kidney disease. But how many people listening to this, and be honest, really know how to change a tire? Look, Certainly, there's a lot to be said about taking personal responsibility and being your own advocate. But when I'm sick and I go to the doctor, half the time they tell me not to do my own research. Don't Google, don't wiki, don't make myself a head case. And there's a reasonable expectation that when a doctor prescribes or discusses a treatment, 
It's what they feel is best for you. Kidney failure isn't depression where there's this huge laundry list of medications and therapies that may or may not work and have to be tested through trial and error. If your kidneys fail, there is literally only two treatments. That's it. So then why would someone like Lance not be informed about the better of the two? So there are a lot of long-standing barriers in access to kidney transplantation. This is Professor Rachel Patzer. I am an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine, Department of Surgery, Division of Transplantation, and I'm a health services researcher. Dr. Patzer? Hey, I just entered the lobby. I do research looking at access to kidney transplantation. As it turns out, the great promise that no matter what the socioeconomic condition, the ethnic or racial group to receive health care equally didn't happen. These barriers occur at multiple levels. On the patient level, long-standing racial and socioeconomic disparities in general, African-Americans, like Lance, patients with lower income levels, lower education levels, live in neighborhoods that have more poverty. In other words, the same people less likely to get access to health care in our larger system. Where money matters. How could it be the same people? The government was ready to pay for Lance's transplant. The fact that he was African-American or wasn't wealthy meant nothing to them. The reason is that the government doesn't decide who does and doesn't get informed about transplant. That is handled by other people, some that you may not expect. But for all of them, transplant is a loss. who they are, and why that is in the next episode. The Great Social Experiment was created, produced, and edited by me, David Chrisman. It was engineered and mixed by Samuel Chacintu. If you'd like this series, please share it, subscribe, and leave a review. And if you want to support my work, or you're a patient in need of resources, or just want to learn more, please visit thegreatsocialexperiment.net. That's thegreatsocialexperiment.net. Thanks.